Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here once again with my amazing co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you, and I'm so looking forward to the conversations that we've got ahead I'm really looking forward to these conversations as well, Anna Greta. You know, over recent years, Australia has faced a, a serious housing crisis, a crisis that has devastating implications for people. And today we're looking at what went wrong and where we go from here. Yes, I really am looking forward to today's conversation on an issue which I know is front of mind for so many people around Australia and, in fact, around the world. In Until the mid-1990s, Australia had an impressive rate of home ownership and a high capacity for low-income households to access housing. Today, there's still a high rate of home ownership amongst older Australians, but there's been a significant decline in outright home ownership and a profound decline for home ownership amongst younger and lower-income Australians. We've also seen the neglect of social housing, with waiting lists becoming unbearably long. Whilst social housing was once seen as an essential part of our welfare state, it has become a last resort or often an impossible dream. To talk through these issues today with us, we are joined by Professor Alan Morris. Alan is an urban and housing studies scholar. He's professor at the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at the University of Technology in Sydney, and he's the author of many books, including The Private Rental Sector in Australia, Living with Uncertainty, which was co-authored with Hal Polson and Kath Hulse and published in 2021. He currently has Australian Research Council-funded projects on eviction and on social housing waiting lists. Alan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. my, My pleasure. Alan, we all know that there is a housing crisis in Australia and that that crisis has a very human face. You have recently done some research that involved interviewing people in New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania who are on the social housing waiting list. What did you hear from those interviews about the experience of waiting for social housing? Look, I think uh, the crucial issue is total desperation and uh, trauma. People's lives are fundamentally destroyed by the fact that they haven't got affordable, secure, and adequate housing. So we heard, you know, a range of desperate stories. Um, we interviewed 75 people 
in Tasmania, Queensland, and New South Wales. Um, of those 75, at least 22 had escaped domestic violence situations, and uh, many people were living in very desperate circumstances. If they were private renters, they were having to use a very considerable proportion of their income to pay for rent, and very often that meant that they had very little money left for essentials, even food, uh, certainly um, medical examination, you know, medical activities which didn't, which weren't bulk billed, you know, specialists, for example. If they had children, the, the kids were really, um, you know, it was very, very difficult. And of course, many people were in shelters, which are, you know, lack privacy, very, very insecure and very inadequate. And then a category of people had to go back to living with family, which they had, in a sense, escaped from, you know, which they didn't want to go back to, but they were forced to. And then, of course, you had a few people sleeping rough. The people in the private rental sector, not only were they having to spend a considerable proportion of their income on housing, but also, you know, this perpetual insecurity, which, of course, from a mental health point of view, uh, was, is, is very, very significant. So a lot of people very, very, very stressed and very depressed um, due to their situation. Alan, it is such a, a powerful and an awful picture that you paint just by you know, summarising what it is that you've heard from people. And I think any of us could only imagine how much our lives are impacted and how awful it is when we don't have a safe place to call home. Um, and Ellen, I, I do research with, with children often growing up in the context of poverty. And you know, recently we've, we've worked with a, a 12-year-old boy who was living in a car with his mum and his four siblings, a little boy who'd, who'd just moved into emergency accommodation after living in a tent. And he said to us, you know, I, I have such happy memories of when I had a home. And it is devastating to hear anyone, but particularly children, you know, going through those kinds of experiences. Your work has, has highlighted the real challenges facing so many different groups. You talked about people who are facing domestic violence. You've also done research around international students' experiences. In, in the current crisis that we're facing, which groups are particularly vulnerable to housing insecurity and to homelessness? We live in a context where, you know, the expectation is that everybody's in the labour market. And of course, you know, that's totally untrue. I saw a figure today that in terms of sources of income, close to a quarter of all Australians are dependent on um, government benefits, you know, of one sort or another. Age pension, disability support pension, of course, job seeker, etc. So those are the more, you know, if you're not in the job market, if you're not in the labour market, you're in very serious trouble. Um, in terms, and you know, especially if you haven't got that family support. So I think those those people are extremely vulnerable. And then, of course, people who leave in relationships, you know, where they've been haven't been the uh, the uh, the income earner. And of course, if they have children, then they, you know, their their situation is extremely vulnerable. You know, if you buy yourself, you can. It, it's 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 very difficult. But if you buy yourself and you're young, youngish, you can couch surf. For a while, you know, you can go and live with a friend or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's hard, but if you've got kids, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult. And there's this 
perpetual fear, of course, of the kids being taken away because you're not looking after them adequately. And it's very, very difficult. And then you see your kids, you know, the kids, of course, uh, very often become very difficult because they're not in a secure situation. I think being not being in the labor market is the crucial issue. You know, having very low income and um, not being, obviously not being a homeowner, you know, that's, that's the vulnerable. They're, those are the people that are extremely vulnerable or households that are very vulnerable. Alan, has, has your research shown very much about the situation for people who are living with disability? Is, is that a group that is particularly vulnerable? Absolutely. Well, I think not only is it if you have a disability, but if you're a member of your family has a disability. So um, if you have a disability, very often people with disability, they, w- they won't be in the labour market. You know, they won't be employed, so they depend on the disability support pension. And very often with the disability support pension, you know, to find adequate housing is, is incredibly difficult. So the, the few people we interviewed who had physical disability, for example, will often live in circumstances which were completely inappropriate. You know, for example, they couldn't, there was no accessible shower, for example. The, um, the doorways were too narrow for a wheelchair. You know, the one guy we, the one person I interviewed, he could get, in terms of the NDIS, he could get an electric wheelchair, which would obviously really revolutionize his life in terms of mobility. But he couldn't get one because the house couldn't accommodate the electric wheelchair. And probably one of the saddest interviews I had, and I've kept in contact with this person, he, is, um, he has three children. Um, all, you know, I think the eldest is around 30 and then two are in their 20s. The two in their 20s have severe disability, you know, both mental and physical. He's been on the social housing waiting list since 2002. His wife also has some type of disability. I, I, I've never, I'm, I'm not clear what that is. So he's basically 24-7 and, um, you know, he can't get into social housing. And part of the problem, I suppose, is there isn't a dwelling which can accommodate him and the children. So he was living in very, very inadequate rental accommodation. Then he moved in, then he managed to, you know, he just couldn't cope in that. Then he moved to another one and it um, was totally inadequate. Then he was, they were basically given notice. And then his eldest daughter managed to buy a place, but it's got three small bedrooms. It's, I think, on the eighth floor. And he says it's completely and utterly inadequate, you know, because the kids need to get out. Um, well, they're not kids anymore, young adults. And um, the guy, he's totally desperate. Enormously, he said, told me he's been in and out of hospital with anxiety and stress. So I think if you have a disability or if a family member has a disability, it makes it a lot harder. And a lot of the people we interviewed had children with some type of disability. So I think um, there are a lot of people whose lives are just so hard. And if they had affordable and secure and adequate accommodation, their lives would be completely transformed, totally. Alan, I've worked as a physician in hospitals around New South Wales, Canberra and uh, Victoria, and I'm really struck listening to you about 
the countless stories that I've been part of of patients who spend time in hospital whose uh, hospitalizations are more frequent or more complex, whose whose complications in hospital are higher, um, and who we know when we send them home are more likely to come back. And it reminds me again just how strongly related housing and health are. Absolutely. We need to make it, I think, into a stronger health issue. In Australia, rising interest rates have, of course, seen people with mortgages also under real pressure. And in terms of the inequality that's created by housing, how much difference do we see at the moment between those who are renting and people, particularly those on low incomes, who are just coping with their mortgages? Look, I think there's an enormous amount of stress amongst low-income mortgage holders. There's no doubt about it, especially people who bought at the height of the market. You know, they're in very serious trouble. I suppose there is a difference there. I mean, they do have a major asset, you know, even though they have a fortune on that asset, but they do have that asset. So I suppose they could, you know, they have the capacity to maybe borrow more against the asset. And they also have the capacity, I suppose, to cut back. But you look at it, I, I think a lot of mortgage holders are extremely stressed and holding on by their fingertips. I think the difference with the renters is that they have no control. You know, you know in, the, in the current market with these very, very low vacancy rates and landlords um, you know, determined to, very often determined to take advantage of the situation. Um, and of course, some landlords are also in a difficult position. You know, your classic mom and dad investor who's uh, paid a lot of money for investment property, and all of a sudden they they realise they just you know their mortgage has increased dramatically. Um, so they increase the rent dramatically. You know, I think this is a, it's it's much more difficult. I think for the private renter because they just don't know what's what tomorrow will bring. Whereas at least if you own the house even though you don't own it, the bank owns it in a way. You have more control, I think. Earlier this year, we spoke with um, Liz Allen and Paul Burke, who are both here at the ANU, mm. about the intergenerational report. And, of course, there's a very strong generational dimension to the housing crisis in Australia. Absolutely. I'd love to hear you you talk us through how housing is playing out for younger people um, particularly as they're locked out of the rental market, but but also to hear your thoughts on what this means for intergenerational inequality into the future. It is changing the nature of households in a way. I think a lot of young people are living, you know, living at home for an extended period for much much longer. Now I gave a lecture the other day, and a person came up to me afterwards. She's forty. She's still living with her parents. You know, she kind of, you know, she feels she can't afford to move out. She's trying to save. So I think that's an interesting dynamic, and I don't think it's without tension. You know, I mean, obviously in some households it's absolutely fine, but I think it's it's in, it's also a bit infantilizing. I think you know for younger people that they have to continue to live at home. But in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra, I'm sure um, it's very very difficult for young people to move out of home, and if they do move out of home, they invariably have to share in terms of renting, and that can also be stressful. You know, it's, it's all right if you're in your twi- you know, young and early 20s, etc. But as you get a hold of, you do want your privacy, etc. So I think there, there is a there's a tension. I think a lot of young people are very stressed around the housing situation. They feel a bit trapped. You know, they can't buy. They if they rent, they're using all their money. 
you know, it's it's a very they've got to make these choices. I mean, I you know I never experienced it. I think it's it's difficult. It's not easy, and um, I can see it with my own kids. You know, it's not easy. But in going forward, I think this is a this is this is a this is a ticking time bomb, because historically, of course, the age pension being able to live a decent life on the age pension, albeit frugal, has really been dependent on very low housing costs. And that's historically been the position. Old Australians have been able to retire or leave the labor force owning their own home outright. And that is changing. You know, more and more older people are either retiring with a leaving the labor force. They're not necessarily retiring voluntarily, of course, leaving the labor force, you know, with a mortgage or as renters. And that's, you know, that, that is a very dangerous situation. You know, what I did, I, the one piece of research I did, I compared old Australians on the age pension in different housing tenures. I looked at, I interviewed people, homeowner, outright homeowners, people in the private rental market and social housing tenants. The homeowners and the and the social housing tenants generally lived a, a you know a reasonable life. They were able to save, they were able to budget, and they and thereby you know they knew what the expenses were, and um, they gen you know they went on holidays. Uh, they were able to run a motor car. But your older private renters, a lot of them said to me, "What's the point of going on?" You know their situation was so desperate. You know a lot of them were using seventy percent of the income to pay for accommodation you know if something if the heat well a lot of them didn't use any heaters but if the heater broke down they weren't able to replace the heater if the microwave broke down that was it um they were in desperate circumstances a lot of them were by themselves you know that's they they were private renters very often because their relationship had broken down late in life and this is also also becoming more and more common you know a lot of people are separating in their 50s etc and a lot of women were, you know, just that I interviewed, that generation just hadn't, you know, were, it was a, their relationships were very gendered, so they hadn't really worked and they were very financially dependent. And they found themselves in the private rental market and were really battling. But, uh, but other, you know, some people have lost their jobs, not, not only a question of separation. So I think this could become a real crisis where a lot of older people just can't cope on the age pension, which you know is reasonable if you uh, if you have low housing costs. Alan, this is just such an important conversation, and the historical context, particularly that you have offered us, the generational shifts that we've seen in the last few decades, is so important. But we'll take a really short break now and come back in just a moment after a break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Professor Alan Morris and we're talking about housing. We just recently touched on some of the historical contexts and shifts that have taken place. And I'd like to turn our attention now to social housing. Alan, you've written about the residualisation of social housing, which represents this shift from the idea that social housing should be widely available to those who need or even choose to use it, to an idea that social housing is a last resort or a last option and that supply is very limited. How did that shift come about and and what's it meant for housing in Australia? Well... You know, I think post-World War II, we obviously had that dramatic increase in home ownership, say from 53% in 1945 to around about 72% by 1966. So it was pretty dramatic. And then accompanying that, you did have the building, you know, quite extensive uh, building of social housing. Social housing at that point, you know, was for really low-income families very often. Uh, and it wasn't, so, it wasn't stigmatized so dramatically. Uh, um, and people could access it. You know, but obviously, even on one income, people could also access home ownership. So it was very often for people who were really in very low-paying jobs and maybe for um, you know, the small proportion of people at that point, you know, that's the golden age of capitalism, <laughs> that were unemployed. And then, you know, from the mid-70s onwards, of course, you had more and more people really struggling. And um, by the time the the Labour Party got back into power in 1983, the social housing waiting list was very high and um, was significant. And the Hawke-Keating government, actually, what people forget is it's very interesting from, this seems seems to be, uh, it's like a part of history which is really forgotten in Australia. So from 1985 to 1995, 115,000 public housing dwellings were built, you know, which is pretty substantial, 11,000 a year. And especially from 1985 to 1990, it was a very, very, there was quite extensive building of social housing. And then there was this, you know, from the early 1990s, actually Paul Keating made this speech where he spoke about, oh, a Commonwealth rent assistance is going to be the, the, the answer for low-income households and in, in, in the private rental market. And there was this gradual shift away from social housing in, in the last couple of years of the um, Labour Party being in power. And then, of course, Howard took over in 1996, and you had this very, very dramatic shift where social housing was seen as a negative and basically, um, you know, what happened was a very, very severe curtailment of the building of social housing. So social housing no longer kept up with the population. You know, a few thousand were built. But um, so in the mid-1990s, about 6% of all housing in Australia was social housing. And now it's around about 4%. So, you know... 6% to 4% sounds like a, you know, in terms of percentage, it doesn't sound very dramatic. But if you convert that into absolute numbers, it's very dramatic. You know, it's probably 
you know, we've really dropped the ball. There should be there around about 440,000 social housing dwellings at the moment. So there should really be, you know, if if they had kept up, there would be, say, if they were building, say, 10,000 a year, there would be an extra 996, there would be an extra 270,000 social housing dwellings, which obviously would make a, a tremendous difference. So um, that has been, you know, it's, it's, it's really... Um, it's completely changed the face of social housing, you know. To get into social housing now is unbelievably difficult. In New South Wales, there are around about 55,000 people on the social housing waiting list, of which 5,000 are priority. So if you're on the general waiting list, you could wait for ever. You know, you might never get into social housing, especially if you live in Sydney and you want a house, you know, you want a social housing dwelling in Sydney. If you're in this, like some remote area or and there's a bit of social housing, your chances are better. Um, if you're on the priority list, you might also have to wait for a considerable period of time. So what we have now is a situation where is to get onto the waiting list, you have to be very, very, uh, you know, you have to have complex needs, basically. And then to get onto a priority list, you have to have extremely complex needs. You know, you basically have to be homeless. So it's uh, it's a crisis. Uh, Alan, that that history is so incredibly helpful in helping us to understand how we've arrived at, at where we now find ourselves. Mm-hmm. And some of those changes in thinking and in priorities that you've mapped out for us have played out in a, a broader context of neoliberal ideas of the financialization and the commodification of essential services. In many countries, residential mortgage markets now account for a considerable part of gross domestic product. And so we're seeing real shifts. And one of our regular guests, John Falzon, once made a comment that's just stayed with me. And he said, we've moved from seeing housing as a human right to it being a speculator sport. Sure. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how some of those those big ideas have shaped thinking and and whether it's possible for us now to begin to reverse what's been a decades-long trend. You know, a key aspect of neoliberalism, I think, and we've seen it with this no campaign now, is this notion of the extreme agency. You know, that everybody can make it in the market and if you don't make it, it's your fault. And I think that's incredibly dangerous, you know, and very, very conservative. Because what it does, you know, it basically says, um, you know, it, it, it completely discounts structural and historical factors, you know, which shape an individual. I mean, if you're born into a middle-class household and your parents are homeowners and you educate and they educate and you go to university, of course, your life chances are so much greater. But, you know, if you're born into a, a low-income family or, you know, and they're struggling, et cetera, and, you know, it, it, and they have, your parents aren't, uh, haven't got formal education, I mean, life can be quite challenging and difficult, you know. So I, I really think this is what neoliberalism has done. It's like this, and, and, and as a result, you know, so you pull back on government intervention. And, of course, housing is a very expensive commodity. So, you know, it's like swept under the carpet. And it's very interesting. I mean, you know, with the pandemic, of course, you know, economists, community housing providers, ACOS, everybody was telling the Morrison government to build social housing, to focus on social housing. You know, it was an obvious economic stimulus, which would not only have stimulated the economy, but also, you know, created the more possibilities for 
for desperate households, individuals. And they point blank refused. I mean, they, you know, and they, they have cast social housing as this negative force, you know, which creates dependency. And, uh, and you know, this whole, now you have this whole emphasis on social mix. You know, as a, it's like magically, you know, poor households, it's like imbibe this middle class, these middle class values and become good citizens if they like live close to a middle class person. You know, it's incredibly patronizing. Um, yeah, so I think this is part of the problem, you know, I think, yeah, and historically, and of course, um, I think hopefully now with Labour in power, I mean, I think there's definitely been a shift. There's no doubt about it. The shift, um, you know, it's it's not dramatic, but I think there is a realization that this is a crisis, and they they are, you know, there's an endeavor, there's a there's a realization that something has to be done, and hopefully we will see, you know, the building of social housing again. And I think, you know, the Greens, to their credit, uh, you know, they <laughs> they have pushed the federal government to actually uh, provide, you know, three billion dollars more. And um, one, you know, fingers crossed that this, you know, this has a, starts having an impact because um, if we don't build social and social and affordable housing and don't do something about the housing situation, you know, the crisis will just intensify. I mean, what is worrying is that you know, Australia, the population is increasing, and um, the a lot of the jobs are, are are not paying very much, and you know, I think we need affordable housing. You know, people are really struggling. So, Alan, as you mentioned, there's been some shift, I think, in the politics around housing and certainly as uh, in the last couple of years, probably prompted by COVID, but potentially there before the COVID pandemic, housing really has uh gained the attention of so many voters and so many people around the country. And so we're seeing uh, from the federal government more engagement on the challenge. And particularly, I'm interested perhaps to look at some of the frameworks that have been presented. The Commonwealth Government has recently established the Housing Australia Futures Fund with an aim of building 30,000 new and affordable homes. The legislation was quite contentious and it's taken some time to pass both houses, particularly in negotiation with the Greens, but it has recently passed. Do you think it will make a difference? I think it will make a difference. Whether 30,000 homes will be built in five years from the Housing Future Fund, I must say I'm very sceptical. I don't know how that will work. I, I should imagine, I think the way it might work is if community housing providers use the money to, it's like, learn more, you know, borrow more money, etc. But, you know, if you think about it, to build a home, an apartment, say, you're talking about a minimum of, say, half a million dollars. So um, two homes, a million dollars. Now, if the Housing Future Fund generates um, 5%, so that's $500 million, 500 times two is a thousand, so that's a thousand homes a year. So I'm not exactly sure where this figure of five thousand comes from. It's it's um, to me, it's a bit of a magic pudding, and uh, I don't think there's been enough interrogation of this, you know, this uh, figure. I I, I I personally, I don't really understand it, but maybe um, you know, maybe there's some magic there somewhere. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm I'm I'll be amazed if uh, the Housing Future Fund does provide 5,000 homes a year. The, obviously, the direct revenue, the $3 billion 
extra now. That is, you know, that's very positive. And hopefully that will make a big difference. Just to add to this, in New South Wales, in Sydney, there was the terrible selling off of the Millers Point social housing. Now, Millers Point was, it was tragic. You know, you had this incredibly unique community which had been there for 100 years. You know, people really aged in place because of the help of their neighbours. It was an incredible community and they destroyed it. It was absolutely brutal, brutal. You know, everybody had to move, no exceptions, are ever old. I mean, I interviewed people who were 90 who had to move from Sirius. You know, and Sirius was, Sirius, of course, is around the corner from uh, Midas Point in the rocks. And um, it was purpose-built for social housing. It was the most amazing apartment block, you know, with all these me- with meeting places. People were so happy to be there. You know, it was incredible, destroyed. Now it's going to be, they're going to sell these apartments that they're building for probably 10 to $15 million, you know. Anyway, but uh, the point I wanted to make is that besides highlighting the brutality of that, the money raised, which I think was ultimately around about $700 million, has built 1,500 homes, you know. And of course, a lot of them had to were built in the, in the outer Sydney and regional areas, you know, where the land's cheaper. Um, so it's very, uh, you know, you need money, basically. What, what drives me, what, what I think is required and is a target. You need a target and government needs to be held accountable to that target. And I think you need a target not only in terms of the number of homes built, but also in terms of the proportion of the, of the federal budget, which is allocated to housing. <laughs> it's, it's so minuscule. You know, you think of the federal budgets around about $650 billion. So of that, I think around about $4.5 billion is allocated to Commonwealth rent assistance, and then about $1.6 billion is allocated to social housing and homelessness. You know, surely, surely they can find more money. You know, it's just, uh, and now there's also a $22 million billion surplus, of course. So one hopes, you know, that over time... Um, there will be a shift. <laughs> Alan, you, you talked about the destruction of purpose-built social housing mm. that provided both homes but also communities for people. Absolutely. And one of the things that really worries me about the direction we're taking mm. in a lot of urban planning is that profit is at the core. It's often driven by um, the needs of developers rather than the needs or the interests of developers rather than the needs of communities. Sure. I'd love to hear your thoughts on as we begin to ramp up the building of social housing again, how we need to think about not just building places for people to live, but building homes that connect people to their communities and create good places for people to be. No, I think that's a very important point. You know, we have just behind us here, we have uh, social housing, which was built in response to the Rudd government initiative, you know, in response to the global financial crisis. And nobody knows it's social housing because it's properly built. It's very, it's architecturally, it's very, it's quite aesthetic, it's pleasant. And, you know, it just blends into the neighbourhood. And I think that's what you need. I think the era of towers is over, of course. I mean, you know, I, th- I don't think they'll do that again. But even in those towers, people have created community, you know, 
and it's they very you know the national. I, I mean, in Sydney, I don't know if you well, I know in Victoria, well, you know, Dan and one of Daniel Andrews' last press conferences was he was going to knock down all the towers and replace them, which is completely bizarre. But yeah, they want to replace Waterloo, which is this inner city suburb. You know, they want to knock down the towers. It's gone. It's complete madness. I, you know, where are people going to go when they in in the interlude? You know, Miller's Point, which I know, which I know very well, which I knew very well. So many older people were able to stay in their homes because of community, because of neighbor support. It was incredible. You know, they would, person would be ill, they would take them to the doctor, they would bring them food. People had had signs like, you know, if the blind didn't go up in the morning, they knew, oh, sure, you know, Bill's in trouble. We better go and knock on his door. You know, very, very deep social connections, which are so important. And I think uh, in terms of building more social housing, yeah, I think it's very important that the, the design is very important. In Miller's Point, you have this incredibly good design where people had to, so the, in High Street, it, it was low rise and people had to walk up to the apartment, you know, and so you would walk past your neighbor. And there was a lot of interaction. Of course, some people had terrible neighbors, which was also a problem. But, um, you know, if you've got a good neighbor, can, yeah, because people on, you know, you know, a lot of people uh, in Millers Point had disability. They weren't very mobile. So it was very important because they helped one another. And I think hopefully the social housing that's built is not built also in, in areas which are far from employment. You know, what you need is people in the inner, in the inner rings. You don't want social housing to be stuck in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's, that, that will be, you know, that, what that will result in is people being unemployed perpetually there, and then their kids being unemployed and their kids going to schools which aren't very good. And, you know, you, you want to normalize things. You want to create a situation where social housing isn't stigmatized, ideally. Mm. And it, it is. It's some of the delights of inner city Sydney and Melbourne has been that mix of uh, people living in different accommodation sure. at different times of their life. Uh, it's mm -hmm. part of what maintains the vibrancy of the cities. Um, but I'm not sure how we recognise it. So I'd be fascinated to hear some of your ideas about the solutions. From your research on housing and urban design, are there examples either here in Australia or internationally that give us ways to resolve these deeply entrenched problems around housing? That's a tough question. <laughs> Look, I think, I mean, getting back to Miller's point in Syria, so those were terrific examples of, what you, of how social housing should be. Because in Miller's Point, there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of homeowners in Miller's Point. And there was quite a lot of connection between uh, the homeowners and the social housing tenants. You know, they, um, I know they, they, even socially, there were connections. And when I um, did my research, there was a committee. I, um, and the committee was also, also had a couple of homeowners on the committee who were helping the residents, you know. So I think that's what you need is, is the housing has to be, you, you shouldn't be able to identify oh, that social housing. You know, that, that, uh, that's the ideal, I think, that the housing should be the same as all the other housing in a way, you know, and interspersed. I don't think, you know, you shouldn't really, you know, this notion of isolating social housing, it immediately becomes stigmatized. And I think that's, that's obviously very negative. 
people find it difficult if they, you know, you give your address and you're like the person that you give an address to, their eyebrows raise, you know, because, and then they, you know, they, in terms of even getting jobs or whatever. So I think ideally over time, if this, you know, when the new social housing is built, that it's interspersed like what they did with the global financial crisis. I mean, that was a, that was actually a very successful, a remarkably successful program. You know, in uh, two years or three years, they built 19,300 social housing dwellings and it was just some of them was affordable. And they were, it's all interspersed, you know, small developments. And it's been very successful, very successful. People, you know, there was quite a lot of complaining in the beginning, you know, not in my backyard, but it dissipated. And I think the reason for that was because it was low scale and um, and the housing was good you know it was it wasn't didn't stand out as inferior Alan, this this has been such a remarkable conversation and i feel as though it's a conversation that's taken us from the real depths of despair that people experience when they don't have secure or safe housing to thinking about what works and giving us some optimism for the future and as we wind up this conversation, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what are the urgent steps that governments, both the Commonwealth and perhaps also state levels in Australia need to take to keep us on a pathway towards greater optimism? I think a couple of things. The way housing should be viewed, first of all, is a human right. You know, I think everybody should have access to affordable, adequate and secure housing. I think that should be basic. I mean, it's so foundational for everything, you know, in terms of health, in terms of leading a decent life, etc. But I think linked to that, there's a real cost benefit, It's you know, which is forgotten. The cost benefit is absolutely dramatic. You know, if people have secure and affordable housing, their mental health improves. You know, the number of days in hospital declines dramatically. I was the um, chief investigator for a project on housing and support initiative for people with mental illness. So that project, what it did was they took um, 100 people with very serious mental health issues and they gave them housing and they gave them support. Sometimes you also need support. It was, the impacts were dramatic. You know, their hospitalization days dropped absolutely dramatically. And of course, as we know, you know, a day in emergency costs, what, about $1,000 a day or something, if not more. And um, they reconnected with family. Some of them went back into education. You know, it, were, it was incredibly inspiring. And of course, the foundation there was the housing. Although, you know, and also the supports. I do think this notion of this, that this is a very expensive commodity, you know, we can't afford it, is a very, very narrow way of viewing housing. I think we should look at the unintended consequences of not having uh, adequate and affordable housing. They are absolutely dramatic. And costs, costs us both in terms of like morality, but the economic cost, you know, and people's lives. Is, is is phenomenal and I think that's that's where we should my feeling is that this is an absolute crisis and everything should be you know we should do everything in our power now to to try and resolve it and create a, a decent society 
Professor Alan Morris, this has been a remarkable conversation and the research that you are doing is so incredibly important. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation, for sharing both your research and your wisdom and insights. My absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation. And I'm again reminded just how important the conversations around housing are across Australia. It's not just about the housing market, but it's so much more in the lives that we lead. Housing is a fundamental and essential part of human health and well-being. Without adequate housing, we see illness, disability, suffering, uh, which is completely preventable when we have access to adequate shelter. I'm often struck by the phrase, a life of dignity, which has at its core adequate shelter. Uh, And the the notions that Alan raised and and explained so beautifully around control and autonomy and giving people agency in their life, we know that these are extraordinarily important variables for health and for well-being, for both mental health and for physical health. The downstream impacts, the failure to address housing as a fundamental uh, necessity for our population, they're immense. We know we see uh, access to housing or housing insecurity feeding demand in our education system, in our healthcare sector, and of course, in our justice and legal environment. And so addressing this upstream variable just seems so important. Yeah, look, I agree, Anna Greta. And I, I keep thinking about some of the children that we're working with who have experienced ha- housing insecurity or sometimes homelessness at such young ages. And the trauma of that is going to stay with those children for the rest of their lives. So these are really, really important issues. But Anna Greta, I was also really struck by the point that Alan made when he was talking about neoliberalism and the way in which neoliberalism has led us towards extreme agency. And I I couldn't agree more with him. And I think it is so problematic. And as I listened to him talking about that, I was reminded of that remarkable conversation we had before the referendum with Thomas Mayo, when Thomas talked about the ways in which we do better when we support one another. And the point he made that it's human nature for us to want to help one another. And we have somehow landed within a society where we're no longer doing that, where housing and food, which are basic human rights and fundamental human needs, are not provided to people. Um, And so often we say that that's because of individual failure, when really we know it's about structural problems and discrimination and systems failures. But I do think we we have a moment perhaps where we can shift this and that work that's being done in Australia and globally around a shift to a wellbeing economy or a wellbeing approach to our societies perhaps gives us a way forward. Mm, Absolutely. Lots of food for thought around housing and its importance in the Australian global context. This podcast is, of course, produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we love to hear from you. Please leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast.
We love hearing from you, our audience, so please do reach out to us on the platform formerly known as Twitter at ANU Crawford or via email. We're at policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. As always, our deep thanks to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's it for us for now. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. 